Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to the Boyce of Reason podcast. Today's guest is Adrian Lee Oliver, and he relates his experience growing up as a black foster child in rural Kentucky. This episode contains some very intense stories and some very intense language that you might not want blaring in your house or your place of business. On the same token, I hope that that doesn't make this episode verboten because it's actually a very important story to listen to. I came across Adrian on Twitter. He wrote this brilliant Twitter thread that where he shows his reasoning through Black Lives Matter and the racial tensions in America right now and the ways in which he thinks we could go about solving those problems. We sparked up a conversation through that and I invited him on my channel. I highly recommend you spend the 10 minutes to read that Twitter thread. I'm not going to do it here. I want this episode to be centered around his experience first and foremost and then extrapolate from that experience into his ideas and his opinions. Those opinions are distilled in brilliant fashion on Twitter, and that link is in the description. That all said, I'm going to get out of the way and introduce you to Adrian Lee Oliver. I think the most relevant starting point to give people context to my involvement here is I just now discovered that thread that sort of got all the attention on Twitter. It was just my attempt to speak openly and publicly about some disturbing things that I was seeing in the black community. Uh, and in the nation at large. And I was completely unaware at that point that there were people like yourself and people like James Lindsay, Lynn Lowry, Brett Weinstein, you know, that the whole uh, clique of people who were sort of and have been doing this work in earnest for a very long time. So when I wrote that thread, it was in complete ignorance of the fact that there was a body of work on this, that there were other people who were noticing the things that I was noticing. And it was a little bit embarrassing to me to find how derivative my thinking was with regard to some of these other prominent thinkers. And in the time since, I've been taking it upon myself to understand the arguments that are being made and dig into the material of the people who are at the tip of the spear on the pushback against what we're witnessing with the, well, I mean, they would say the anti-racial movement, but I think it's more the racialization of all corners of our nation. Insofar as I want to be on the right side of history, you guys are the people who I think I want to be talking to. So I want to put that disclaimer out there. I'm not intending to speak as a, a person who has any sort of intellectual authority or academic authority on these issues. I'm just a guy who is walking around having conversations with people and discovering the extent to which really bad ideas are infiltrating uh, the thinking of individuals on every spectrum of my social circle. I wrote this thread and I just got, you know, nothing but really good feedback, except on a couple of points. And one of the main points that I, I got some pushback on was people said that I was appealing to emotion and uh, appealing to the mob when I said things like I've been a victim of extreme racism and extreme br brutality in my life. And I can see how that might seem that way. It's not exactly the case. And here momentarily, I do want to sort of give a highlight reel of my experiences with racism and how it's affected the outcomes of my life. I wish it wasn't necessary, but I do think it's valuable to sort of do this because I want to make it very clear, even though I am completely against the tactics and some of the ideology and dogma that's propping up this anti-racial movement, I'm not speaking out against a community. I'm speaking out against ideas that are, I believe, corrupting uh, certain communities. And uh, I don't want to leave myself open to being interpreted as someone who is insensitive to the plight of my own community or who is ignorant of the sort of incidents and uh, uh, influences that racism has uh, on uh, people of color in America. I'll just sort of give you a chronological rundown of the biggest highlights in my life where I've ran into racism and uh, hopefully set the stage to have a conversation about how it is possible that I've had these experiences and yet I still have the positions that I currently hold. So uh, as a child, very young, I had uh, some wild and crazy experiences. My family was homeless all the time. So my mother, she would take us all around the country. We lived in 23 states and probably 50, 60 different cities uh, uh, throughout each of these states by the time I was six, right? But we would always go back to this little town called Carlisle, Kentucky, where it was sort of a time capsule of the 1940s that still existed uh, in 1990. And it was completely segregated. There were places where black people couldn't eat. Um, there were places where black people couldn't go. 
there was an entire section of town called Henryville, uh, where black people lived. White people had the rest of the place. And it was very common uh, to just find yourself being called a nigger on any day of the week. You could walk down the street as a family without someone screaming nigger out their car window. So that was sort of the setting of my childhood. From there, uh, we moved to the fact that because of the homelessness and my mother's mental illness, we ended up being removed from state's custody. And in the situation where the police came to remove us from her custody, she was holding me and they were ushering my siblings into the state vehicle and the police ripped me from her arms. Uh, And it was like a slow motion scene from some drama when she tried to break through and get back to her children. The last thing that we saw of our mother for a very long time was the police beating her to the ground with batons until she couldn't move. Um, so we fast forward to uh, me being in state's custody. Before I entered first grade, I sort of tested for my IQ and I was found to be gifted. They wanted to skip me from first grade to ninth grade. I tested at a 10th grade level on most of my uh, academics. This was problematic because I was placed in a foster home in a town called Cynthiana that was predominantly white, very few black people. And uh, in school, I just, as a matter of fact, happened to outperform all the other white kids in every single facet of academics and athletics. And the white parents didn't like this very much. Hmm. So uh, I wasn't made privy to the reasons behind this until I was much older. But it turned out that I was taken out of my normal courses and placed in special ed because people knew no one was going to fight for me. I was a black kid in Cynthiana with no parents. This is just an orphan kid uh, who everybody knew was invisible. And they literally made me invisible. They took me out of my normal courses, placed me in a special ed class where we just did paint by color. We watched videos, Land Before Time, and we did puzzles. And it wasn't for several years, well, not several, but a couple of years after that it was discovered that I was gifted again because a teacher found me reading Dickens in my free time on lunch. And uh, uh, he thought it was cute. He was like, oh, look at this little special kid. Who, uh, uh, does it have pictures? And I start conversing with him about the plot of A Tale of Two Cities. And he was just flabbergasted. He, 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 what is this kid doing in special ed? And finally, that, that, uh, that was rectified uh, later down the road. But it was never rectified fully, despite the fact that I had this IQ following me around, that it was only used to ever reprimand me, to tell me I was smarter. But no one ever paid attention to my education. I never actually received an education. And that could be a conversation for another time. Mm -hmm. So uh, they completely derailed my opportunity for education. It was largely based on racial sort of uh, misgivings. So we moved further down the road in my experience, and we bounced around several different homes for several different years. And finally, we find a white woman in Berea, Kentucky, who was wanting to adopt me and my two brothers, not our older sister, but just uh, me and my two brothers. And uh, she goes through the entire process, and her ex-husband finds out that she's going to adopt us, and evidently he's a racist man. So he says that he vows to kill any nigger found sleeping underneath of the roof of the house that he paid for. So that completely takes that you know permanency off of the table for all of us. And we just got lost in the system, basically, after that. I ended up, depending on how, how you count it, 45 different homes uh, in 12 years. Uh, let's see. This is just the highlight reel. There's so much more. But by the time I became a teenager, my social worker had decided that I was being corrupted by black culture. She unilaterally just decided that this was my issue, that I was being corrupted by black culture. And so she proceeded mm-hmm. to take it upon herself to, from then on, only place me in sundown towns and towns where I was uh, either the only black person or one of the only black people. So if you're not familiar with the term sundown town, a lot of people outside of Appalachia probably aren't. It's what we call these towns where they're predominantly white and they're tolerant of people of color coming in to buy things and do business. But they say, don't be here when the sun sets, right? You're not allowed to live here. You can come through, you can eat, you can spend your money here don't be here when the sun goes down. So that's where they get uh, this moniker, uh, Sundown Town. The bulk of my uh, really nasty experiences with racism come in the context of uh, my experiences as a teenager in this Sundown Town known as Jackson County, where there's literally a a plywood sign underneath the uh, Welcome to Jackson County sign that says the sun don't set on niggers in Jackson County. So this is the first thing that I see upon entering my new home. uh, What year is this when you enter? The year 2000. Okay. This is the year 2000. Uh, So I was 15. So 
in this town uh, with this sign and this attitude, the first thing that happens is uh, I get placed in public school and the whole town is made aware that there's a black guy living in the town. Now. And I was a very, you know, muscular, large for my age type of a guy. I, I, I looked like I could have been, you know, probably a 20 something year old guy. So the boys home that I was placed in, it was called the Barnabas Home or the Anvil Institute. They immediately had to put bulletproof windows in the entire dormitory because they were receiving so many threats for people to kill me by shooting me through the windows uh so that was my introduction into jackson county uh there were a lot more things than that but i'm just trying to keep this brief i'm not i'm not going to even get into the the sort of school life that i had to go through being the only black person in the school and having a predominantly racist peer group um Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, I had to fight a lot in the bathrooms. I would try to use the bathroom, and they would just chant, I smell a nigger outside of the bathroom stall while I was in, and I'd have to come out and stand my ground and fist fight a, a couple of angry rednecks. Uh, so this, this continued, and at some point, I do want to say, this ended up being one of my most cherished experiences in life because uh, I took it upon myself to become an ambassador for, uh, uh, for black people. I, I realized that these were people who had never had an encounter with black people, and that uh, I was going to decide for all of them, what they really thought from their experiences with black people. And I actually, uh, for the people who were in my age group, by the time I left that town, all of them were much more tolerant of black people. I became a very prominent person in the school, uh, sports, cheerleading, uh, uh, everything, academics. And uh, I was able to do some really cherished things uh, with the peer group that I found myself in where they no longer held the same sort of racism that they held when I arrived, right? Uh, I was able to sort of change hearts and minds by uh, being an example of how their stereotypes could clash with the reality that I wasn't that person. I was, you know, uh, I was completely different from what they had sort of been raised to believe. Um, what is, but, what was, could you, if you remember, could you explain, like, how did you get that idea to take that tact? What was the reasoning or was there something that you saw outside of you that, that gave you a clue of how to do that? So, I've been, well, as I'm attesting to right now, I've been dealing with racism my entire life. And uh, I I realized that I really was acting out their stereotypes. So at that point in my life, uh, I was an angry little shit, you know? Uh, And I was sort of uh, misanthrope and uh, just living up to every stereotype, angry, saggy pants, and just all of uh, of the nines that sort of reifies in their mind that they're right immediately about what I must be. So I took it upon myself to really ask myself, is it really worth having to fight every day? Is it really worth having to be completely socially isolated? Or is there some way that I can approach this to where I can navigate this, uh, this social dynamic in a way where everybody benefits? And so I just started experimenting. And I was very successful in a lot of different ventures uh, Man, I, would, I don't want to hijack this. And I know this is not why we're here. So I don't want to. Uh, Adrian, no, we're here just to listen to you okay. <laughs> and, and to discover things from you. So, so I, uh, if, if I can just do a tangential, uh, tangential uh, story. So there was a, a situation I was in a history class and I had this. Uh, everybody had to uh, group up with another classmate. And the last classmate who got stuck with me, he just picks up his desk carries it across the room and refuses to interact with me. So for the rest of the semester, you know, we have this semester project that we're supposed to do and we go about doing this. He does his own thing. Everybody else works in groups. I do my own thing. So at the end of the semester, I get an A on everything, you know, uh, uh, just uh, top of the class. And he's got like, you know, D or a C or something. So when we come back from uh, Christmas break, he picks up his desk, carries it back over and sits next to me. And this is, this is something that a lot of black people are going to really not be able to understand. But he sits in that and just starts staring at me and says, you know what? You ain't dumber and shit like I thought you'd be. And I looked at him and my first reaction was, I'm going to hit this bitch in the mouth. I'm sorry. I'm going to hit this guy in the mouth. And he says, you know what? You don't smell like shit like, like my mommy and daddy said you would either. And he said, as a matter of fact, you're smarter than I am. You got higher grades on me than everything. And so this guy, I can't remember his name. I know his last name was Ingram, but I can't remember his first name. But uh, he was sort of my inroads to uh, uh, sort of diplomacy with the rest of the school because he was sort of a, a good old boy and he, uh, he was in the ag society. And so he starts vouching for me, uh, you know, that hold on, just give him, a, give this guy a chance. He's, he's, he's a pretty decent fella and he's smart and funny. And so he sort of got me 
accepted into the social dynamic in a way that uh, nothing else did. But had I reacted in that moment to his ignorance, because he was actually trying to build a bridge. It was just his social conditioning and his preconceived notions and just his lack of experience with black people that everything that he was saying to me was just offensive as hell, you know? But I had the presence of mind in that moment to just sit back and see where it went. And it turned out that he was trying to extend an olive branch and create some sort of a dialogue. And uh, my sensitivity to that moment uh, ended up uh, paying huge dividends. Uh, anyway, um, so yeah, the, that was the sort, of, the sort of experiences that I had with racism uh, and um, sort of overcoming those differences uh, uh, inform a lot of my positions today about the need for dialogue and the need to sort of suspend these knee-jerk reactions and, and educate and exchange, and, you know what I mean? Uh, but uh, I know it's hard. I know that that can be hard for people. Uh, so getting on with my, my highlight reel, uh, this mm -hmm. is where it gets a little bit uh, nasty. So at, at some point, I had done such a good job assuaging this, uh, 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 this racial tension uh, that existed in the school that the group home that I was in decided that it was safe for other black people to come. <laughs> So they bring uh, another black guy from Louisville. His name was Charles, Charles Wellington, I think. And he starts attending the public school and everything's going well. And so one day we have to do work on Saturdays for the group home. They would use us as uh, free, free labor for the community to chop wood and they would make money off of it, you know, foster care. Uh, and we, got, we get done with our chores for the Saturday. So they take us to lunch at a diner in a, a small town called Tyner at a sit-go gas station. And uh, this we didn't get off of campus except to go to public school and to do these small little outings. So it was our only opportunity to, you know, do something delinquent. So we buy a pack of cigarettes and we go outside. Me and this giant, uh, by the way, he's a year younger than me. I'm 15, he's 14. But this guy is six foot four and probably 240 pounds. He looks just like the reincarnation of Biggie Smalls. Uh, and so we're standing out in front of this sit-go in Tyner and we are out there chain smoking Newports for, you know, maybe 20 minutes. And evidently someone either rode by and saw us or someone made a phone call uh, because at out of nowhere, uh, probably five trucks and SUVs and cars just pull up to a screeching halt and out hop 30 or 40 armed skinheads. Hmm. Uh, they're, they're armed with machetes and chains and baseball bats and rifles and shotguns. And they are making a beeline directly to us. And uh, so... A little bit of background uh, in Jackson County. There's this uh, white power sect, uh, a chapter called the Cornbread Mafia, and uh, they don't like black people. <laughs> and uh, so, to them, what they're seeing is there's just two giant black men in front of their sit go uh, next to their baseball field, just smoking up a pack of Newports without a care in the world. Uh, mm -hmm. So they descend on us, and I immediately understood what they were seeing. And I grabbed Charles and I opened up the door and I shoved him inside and I put my back up against the door. And all I could do was say, hey, what's up? And so immediately, don't don't nod your nigger head at me, motherfucker. Where, what the fuck are you doing in my? T so they are descending on me. I'm surrounded. I've got machetes to my neck. I've got people aiming guns at my face. Uh, and the only mm -hmm. thing that stopped me from actually getting lynched in that moment was there was a, one of the staff who works at the boys home I was at, who is uh, who was a very sort of mythological figure in that community you know the, the sort of folk folk legend status where supposedly he punched a bull and knocked it out or something of this yeah. uh, uh and he he's the one who had taken us out to eat uh lunch he comes out and he sort of brokers this truce between and he tells him these boys are 15 you know they, they live at the boys home you touch them you're gonna have to go through me sort of a situation and the sort of respect that he, he had in the community they said well just don't have these niggers out here in our uh, in town anymore it's going to be a problem so they load back up and they go away. So after that, uh, it turns into a situation where, uh, in fact, uh, they were true to their word. They made sure to police the town to make sure that the black people were not out and about. And uh, we always suspected that there was someone who was acting as a mole inside of the boys' home because for summer vacations and Christmas breaks, we would be allowed to leave and go on what was called uh, a pass to see family or friends for the holidays or for the for vacations or for funerals. Every time that I left the town and I tried to come back, they would have roadblocks set up at both sides of the county line where they were searching everyone's car to see if I was in them. And they had posted signs around the town saying that they were going to gut me if they found me. 
so this this is actually uh, so we would have to stop and do a, pull a U-turn, go all the way back somewhere, let me out of the vehicle, and I'd have to go and get and run behind trees in a creek until I got past the roadblock and my uh, my staff could pick me up further on down the road. Uh, the, that was a thing that happened for a very long time. Uh, so, uh, and then to put the cherry on top of this racial Sunday, uh, I ended up unbeknownst to myself, getting involved in a romantic relationship with the niece of the leader of this cornbread mafia. And this oh, is where everything came to the <laughs> uh, He finds out, and now uh, my assassination has been solicited. An uh, 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 open source, uh, you know, uh, hit uh, put out on me. And uh, they burned across, uh, at this point, I'd moved from the boys' home to a foster home, greatest foster home I ever had. Uh, these people are the only foster home I ever went to that treated me like a, a human being and actually treated me better than their own kids. But I'd only been there for about uh, five months, and they had just dealt with so much, you know, uh, venom from the people in the neighborhood for taking me in. And uh, they ended up burning a cross in their front yard, catching the yard on fire, and I was whisked away uh, to Louisville, Kentucky overnight uh, uh, without any preparation, chances to say goodbye to people, etc. Okay. So uh, I'll have to double back for this other one because it's. It, I, I really want to put a fine point on the fact that I've dealt with the type of racism that probably hasn't been experienced by most people of color since on this side of the 1970s. You know what I mean? Hmm. At one point, there was a, a a kid who I was in this boys' home uh, with named Sam Hurd, and his dad uh, had started dating a black woman from Covington, Kentucky. They lived in a town called McCreary County, down by the state line in Tennessee. And they wanted to prove to this uh, lady that it was safe for her to come and live down there with them. So they entreat me to come, uh, having witnessed the success that I had dealing with racial issues in Jackson County. They entreat me to come along for the summer and prove to this woman that if I can be down there and be safe, she can be safe. Now, this is just altogether one of the most extreme experiences that I've ever had. Mm. Uh, I've never seen anything like this before or since. But Sam, so me and Sam were, were, you know, great friends. And uh, on the way down, he just keeps telling me about this buddy that he grew up with since diapers, who we're just going to get along. We're going to get on like, you know, pigs and slop, whatever you want to say. He just cannot speak highly enough of this guy. So we get down to Sam's house and uh, his dad starts loading up the guns, setting up the trail. We're going to go shooting. And uh, in, in the meantime, Sam says, we're going to go see his buddy. So we hop into this little red uh, convertible and we're riding across town. It's probably 20, 30 minutes away to his friend's house. And we get to this dirt road and I see these two elderly white people. And, you know, they're, they've got to be 80 or 90, but they're propping each other up, walking the cutest thing you've ever seen. And the woman's hunched over to where she's just looking straight at the ground. And we drive by and we're doing probably like five miles an hour because it's a dirt road. We don't want to throw up too much dust. And the woman stands up straight like she's 15 years old and says, is that a nigger? <laughs> and I immediately knew what we were in for. Uh, so just down the road is his friend's house. And uh, he pulls in and hops out of the car, goes up to the front door, knocks on the door. The guy comes out and they just start, oh, my God, when the fuck did you get out? Oh, it's good to see you. And they're hugging and trying to catch up. And at one point, his friend looks over and sees me and says, what the fuck? And grabs Sam and pulls him into the house. And from the outside, I just hear glass breaking, screaming and yelling. And momentarily, uh, Sam comes running out, hops back in the car and just starts zooming out of there. And I say, what's going on? He says, he just said, if I don't get your black ass out of off of his property, he's going to shoot you when he gets his gun loaded. And so Sam was completely taken aback. He had known this guy his entire life. But because McCurry County didn't have black people, the conversation about race just never came up. He did not know it was a racist evidently a murderous racist uh so we get back to the house and we're loading up the guns and uh, i'm like it's no big deal you know i've dealt with this before it's not your fault and we're just going to let it go by and we're going to go back and we're going to go behind the trailer and do some shooting and uh by the time we get loaded up and i've probably got a shotgun and a couple of pistols and a rifle and a rifle on me and they they're equally armed and uh we start to make our way to the trail and we just hear loud engines just zooming down uh, so they lived on a one-way uh, entrance, one way, one way in, one way out. And these guys pull in, and it's his best friend with four truckloads of guys uh, armed to the teeth, and they do a drive-by shooting on the trailer that he knows we're supposed to be in because they were harboring me there as a black man, right? Uh, and uh, it turned into a shootout, uh, and uh, uh, I won't elaborate much further than that. No one was hurt, uh, well, at least not by bullets, but um, that uh, that is a thing that happened. Um, 
so after the Jackson County incident and this McCreary County incident, uh, my social worker sees the error in her ways and puts me in Louisville, Kentucky, so I can get a, uh, get away from the sort of racist uh, stuff that I've been dealing with. Now, those that's a little bit of my experience with racism. Uh, and I just have one thing to sort of speak to uh, a little bit of my experience with police brutality. So I go directly from this uh, Jackson County incident and they put me in what's called an independent living home in Louisville. So I'm I'm, I'm taken directly from being completely institutionalized for 12, uh, almost 12 years. And then they just throw me in an apartment, tell me I have rent due on the first and expect me to be able to navigate, you know, mainstream social society, having been isolated from that for my entire life at this point. So I resorted to a little bit of crime, and uh, I made a little bit of a reputation for myself uh, as being a ruffian. I could elaborate more, but I won't. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I had a couple of roommates who were in a similar situation to myself. They were all black. And uh, we had another friend named Demetrius who uh, would come around. He was in the program, but he wasn't uh, a roommate of ours. And uh, one day he comes running up the stairs, and he says, these people just called me a nigger. We got to go. We got to go. So we all stand up, and we don't know what's going on, and we run out the front door. Uh, and we just just run headlong into a street fight where there's 50, 60 people leaving Bardstown Road, which is basically the Vegas strip of Louisville. Uh, uh, at least back then, it was the place where all the bars and everybody went, basically the, the, the hopping part of town. Basically, uh, the police get called. It's four, or five, four black guys fighting 20 different white guys and 30 or more uh, white people on looking. And the police pull up, and the first thing that they do is handcuff all the black guys and put us on the... Uh, uh, on the sidewalk and uh so at some point the boy demetrius had gone into the house gotten a meat cleaver and came out and tried to attack people with it i personally knocked him out and took the knife and set it down next to a light pole at some point someone actually accused me of being the person who had been the person wielding this meat cleaver uh and so the police start to try to interrogate me and i tell them i don't know what you're talking about so this is what they do to me. They take me to the police cruiser. This is enhanced ter- interrogation. They take me to the police uh, cruiser. They take the, the passenger side seat of the police cruiser, and they push it back as far as it'll go. And then they handcuff me. They take me and turn me upside down to where my wrists are hung up on the, the back of the, the seat. They turn me upside down and cram me into the floor space of, uh, 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 of this, the back seat of this police cruiser. They roll up the windows and turn on the heat, and it's already 80 degrees. It's summer in Louisville, and they leave me there, and they just keep coming back periodically to roll down the windows and say, you want to talk now? You want to talk now? So I'm not going to pretend that the the abuse was one-sided. I was very verbally abusive to these police. I said a lot of really foul things to them. There's a larger story around all that that might be kind of interesting to some people, but uh, I just want to keep it. Uh, uh, to where it's focused on my experience with the police brutality. This is where this one gets really nasty. So these same cops, I talked about their moms and told them I was going to do explicit things to their families and whatnot. And uh, at that point in time, I was a regular at a bar on Bardstown Road. I'd gotten in uh, under circumstances where I just sort of never, it was never questioned whether or not I was of age. Uh, And uh, I would frequent this bar a lot of the time. And I'm there one night, a couple of weeks after this incident that I just described. And I'm I'm getting a little bit loaded, but not more than not more than usual. And for some reason, the bouncers come up to me and they tell me I have to leave. And so I go, I go to, to go to the front door, and they're like, "Nope, you have to go through the back door. You're, you go through the back door." And I, I, I'm guessing the jig is up. They found out that I'm a minor. I'm a 16 year old kid, and I'm in here <laughs> getting loaded with a bunch of adults, and uh, they're they're getting me out of here, and they don't want anybody to see it. So I walk out this back door, loaded to the gills, and. Uh, Waiting in the dark alley behind this bar are two of the cops, the ones who had stuffed me in the, in the cruiser like that. And they proceeded to take turns holding me and beating the living hell out of me to teach me a lesson about my mouth. So th- uh, this is me as a 16-year-old kid, not being uh, approached in any lawful manner, uh, just vigilante justice uh, from start to finish. And so um, I'm going to end it there. I could continue, uh, but I think that anyone who was questioning um, the validity of my claim that I've been a victim of extreme uh, racism and extreme police brutality will probably agree by this point that it it deserves that modifier, that adjective in front of racism. How do you go forward from that moment in life and not allow the anger and the amount of violence that you've absorbed um, control you? And consume you. It's despite all of the experiences that I've had, I've never been someone who 
thinks on racial terms. I do everything in my power to find better explanations before I jump to assuming uh, racism. Uh, but I've done a lot of personal work on myself, and that's a whole other story. Uh, but uh, I see and I believe that these are unfortunate people. Imagine being so unfortunate that your worldview is skewed to the point that you are an adherent to some of the nastiest things that you can believe. These people are, in a way, actually more unfortunate than the people who they attack because this is your legacy in the world. This is your contribution to the project of human society, and you are doing damage instead of building. And there's this uh, compassion that I can find for these people having sort of been embedded among them in the ways that I had for so long that I honestly see the traces back to their their parental upbringing and roots where they're sort of helpless in this scenario in a way. Uh, and even when they become adults, people are like, well, now they should be able to know better. Well, talk to religious people who have a, a difficulty uh, uh, leaving their religions even after they, they encounter counterfactual information that should change their mind. But these things, it's indoctrination and it's a lot harder to escape than a lot of people give credit. Um, and a lot of these people are truly unfortunate to have been uh, convinced of the beliefs that they have. And uh, that's usually the way that I approach these sort of situations. I, I understand that uh, there's a lot of things that I could have been that would not have necessarily been my fault because of the way I was raised. Fortunately, I avoided a lot of that. There's an aspect of what's going on that's billing itself as anti-racism or anti-racist training that is assuming a whole lot about, uh, I guess, white people um, in living lives that are very, very far away from the white people that you grew up around. Uh, these kind of, uh, you know, liberal or progressive white people or just, uh, you know, people in urban environments that have a completely different uh, kind of matrix on race relations than what you are describing. And it seems to be the case in, in a certain way that your legacy or what you went through and the legacy that it harkens back to of pre-70s, pre-civil rights uh, treatment of black people at the hands of white people, that is being drawn upon to justify um, a lot of things that are counter, counter, counter to liberalism, counter to what allowed us as a country to start to make you know, strides towards uh, seeing each other as, uh, you know, characters and not as colors in a way. Well, do you get that gist too? Or what prompted you, I guess, uh, this is another way of asking a less loaded version of the same question. What prompted you to uh, kind of look at the way in which the conversation is heading now with regards to what's called anti-racist training and want to uh, critique it? I keep uh, in touch with a lot of people around the nation uh, from, you know, all of my different exploits and travel and just the conversations that I was having, I was seeing elements of irrationality and conspiracy thinking sneaking into every conversation that I was having, especially with people of color side of my social circle. Okay. And I started having these conversations and hearing about the sort of ideas that were convincing people of these irrational notions. And I looked into a little bit of it and I realized that these things were pseudoscientific, pernicious conspiracy pablum, and they were being cemented as a sort of dogma for the people who adhere to them. The proponents of these ideas are sort of uncritically abiding these things. And you asked, what was my motivation for critiquing it? And it, it isn't just about the ideas. And I want to make this very clear. I have a visceral reaction to bad ideas. I don't, I don't want to stand for any untruth longer than I have to. But at the same time, my chief concern is that I'm thinking about outcomes. I'm thinking about outcomes in society. I'm thinking about the consequences. And what I am projecting in my mind to be the logical causal outcome of these ideas sort of vitiating the black community and being adopted by a majority of black people is it's going to hobble our ability as a community to think clearly. And if you, if you really care about black people, if you really care about people of color, you do not want them to at large become 
adherence to some cultist fabricated notion of reality where only white people can be racist and all white people are inherently racist and they're irredeemable uh, in, in that context. You don't want people to start viewing the world in the context of uh, your identities exist on this hierarchy of a spectrum of different ways that you are oppressed and your value in society is a function of how many of these different identities you can claim to submit your status within that dynamic. Critical race theory is this uh, notion that systemic racism is ipto facto uh, the case for why these things are happening because once again they're trying to say that outcomes are the only thing that matter which I would almost agree with but they're doing it in a way that's skewed uh, and biased where they're saying well because black people are not achieving outcomes in education here that is in and of itself proof of the fact that this is systemic racism and I just don't think that this is a reasoned argument. I don't think that it is riding the rails of reality. I think that insofar as we're allowing people to believe these things, we are doing them a disservice. It is a social failure of a order that hmm. I don't think that we've ever experienced in American history. Really? Yeah. That's your, that's your hypothesis. I do believe that that, that, that is a, my hypothesis. So what do we do with those outcomes, though? Um, because they are, on a statistical level, it does seem like there's a pretty big uh, problem somewhere. And the problem, you could think of it as systemic. What is your uh, answer to that? Or how does the how do you perceive the black community is best served in achieving a better outcome? with regards to education and income and all these other metrics? I think we have to err on the side of assuming that uh, we're dealing more with individual actors than we are systemic consequences. Uh, that whole ideal of seeing people as characters and, and not of colors. Um, so if I can just sort of go back to the story that I was telling you about the police brutality. So th this is the sort of experience that allows me to approach these situations with nuance in a way that a lot of people um, haven't been afforded, right? So in that situation, when we were handcuffed on the sidewalk, as soon as this happened, all of the white guys who we had just been fist fighting on the assumption that they were racist, right, that someone had called our friend a nigger and we were out there uh, defending him, all of these white guys immediately started costing the police. Wait a second, why are only the black guys handcuffed? This is racist. And they just, there's this outcry from these guys that we were just fist fighting because they had been accused of being racist because of an interaction that one of our associates had had with them. And they go into just railing on these police. So you have to understand that the entire precinct showed up to uh, deal with this. There were Humvees and minivans and every cruiser. Anyway, uh, there was one guy in particular and he's telling the police, uh, fuck you guys, you're pieces of shit, this sort of a thing. And he's just really going hard in our favor. And they tell him if he doesn't stop, they're going to take him downtown. And he says, take me downtown. I don't care. I'll be back in 15 minutes. So this is right when they put me in the back of the cruiser. They take him and they actually do take him downtown. And he, he yells to everybody, don't worry, I'll be back in 15 minutes. So he gets into the cruiser and lo and behold, he's back in 15 minutes. And they immediately remove me from the cruiser. They unhandcuff all of the black guys and they start handing out apologies to everyone involved. And they just let everybody go. Now, can you guess why this was? Uh, nepotism of some form? Yes. Uh, so they made the mistake of thinking that they could treat this white guy the same way that they were treating us, unlawfully, unfairly. It turned out that his dad was the DA of the city of uh, Louisville. And they immediately paid a price for uh, their, their excesses and their abuses of authority. And this is something that I've seen working underneath of the layers of what people are calling just lopsided police brutality on, uh, of people of color versus... I think it has a lot more to do with the fact that there's a classism involved where police actually, if they had their way, this is how they would treat everyone. But when they make the mistake of doing it to certain white people, uh, they immediately pay a price because there's no way, it, it, just statistically, when you accost a white person in this way, th there's no way to know how many steps removed they are from a DA or a CEO or a prominent lawyer or the head of some consulting firm or the, a senator or a representative mm -hmm. uh, of, of a state. Uh, but that statistical analysis has the unfortunate converse of also telling them that when you're dealing with black people, 
you're not going to run into the same steps of removal from these people. And it gives them a license in, in a sort of way to act towards people of color. And I see this in trailer parks as well. It's an analysis of, uh, of classism that they're going through where they're, what, are, what is the likelihood that treating this person however I want to treat them is going to come back to bite me in the butt, right? Yeah. And okay. I think that is a lot more... Um, prominent in the thinking that leads to the sort of abuses of people of color that we're witnessing more than the blanket assumption that this is racism. And it's not just racism uh, on the behalf of individuals, which obviously I've just testified exists, um, but that this is a function of a system of racism embedded yeah. uh, in practice. And uh, yeah. so anytime that I've run into these claims of systemic racism, I sort of treat them like I would treat someone's claims of a paranormal, paranormal experience or something of that nature, where if you just look a little bit closer and you calm down, you'll find that there's almost always a better explanation, right? And in, the, in this particular uh, situation, yeah, I learned a lot from seeing what happened when they just assumed they could treat that other guy the same way they were treating us. They paid immediately. There's no easy fix to that. The only fix is to have a society where black people and people of color at large are more highly represented in positions of power, uh, where people have to do the same cost-benefit analysis for uh, uh, their, their abuses of black, uh, black people that they do. Yeah. Their, uh, yeah. In, in a way, we need more corrupt uh, people of color to, just to prove the fact <laughs> that everybody's a dickhead. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Um, the, there's this notion of, like you're, you're kind of touching upon, there's this notion in the mix right now that white supremacy isn't, individual acts. It's an entire force that controls the world, and it goes into everything, every single thing, the way we do math, the way that we uh, buy and sell things. Like All these different systems are now tainted with, quote-unquote, whiteness. What is your? What do you think about the effectiveness or the uh, the contagiousness of this idea of white supremacy or or the white devil in in certain lingo within the black community? Uh, I guess uh, in Nation of Islam stuff, there's some very explicit language about that, but now it's academicized um, and kind of cleaned up, but even more insidious. The first thing that I would say about that is I can't stand for this preemptive strike against uh, expertise. And I think that's what we're witnessing is these people know that eventually they're going to have to contend with the full weight of uh, liberal scholarship. And I, it seems to me that there is a preemptive strike being uh, like with the Steven Pinker situation and uh, a lot of these other prominent academics and scientists who are uh, being attacked, not because of anything they've done, but because their attachment to these. Uh, it feels like a choreographed sort of agenda where they know that these are the people who are at the top of the list of the ones who are going to push back against uh, the nonsense that they're, they're spewing. And they want to preemptively take these people down. Ricky Gervais had uh, a quote, I think he was on uh, with Stephen Colbert. They were talking about religion and trying to figure out what's true. And mm -hmm. uh, Ricky Gervais, I'll never forget, he said, well, if you start the clock over at the beginning of creation and you let it play back out, what are the chances that all of science is going to be discovered to be exactly the way that it is now. And so it, it, the notion that science is somehow, and academic pursuits are somehow a uh, totem of white supremacy, well, it, it wouldn't matter if everyone in the world turned out to be black, science would still discover the same truths about our reality that we're discovering now. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's not a matter of the person interrogating reality, it's, it's a matter of what's able to be arrived at through uh, experimentation and reason and testing and uh, hypotheses and all of these different factors that play into uh, the scientific method. And insofar as we did discover things that were true again, we would be discovering the same truths that we're uh, discovering now, most likely. But it wouldn't be a function of the people uh, who were engaged in that enterprise. It would be a function of the fact that there are things that are true about this reality that can be discovered. And anyone who looks closely and long enough will most likely discover those things. So I, I just completely reject this notion that we have to call into question all of our scientific knowledge and all of our academic knowledge and all of our philosophical knowledge uh, based on the fact that it just so happens to be predominantly white men who have been doing the legwork to provide these insights to our society. Mm -hmm. um, on the other question of what to do about or, or how I feel about this uh, idea that we are beset by a all encompassing system of white power 
I actually made uh, a similar point uh, yesterday. I was speaking with Chris Shelton on his podcast, and it baffles me a little bit that people can actually hold this cognitive dissonance in their brain because let's rewind the clock just one more time. And this is me flirting with a little bit of controversy. I know that there are going to be people who hear the tenor of uh, what I'm saying, and and they're not going to be open to actually listening to what I'm saying for what it is. But this is just a fact of our social reality. And you go back to abolitionist times, pre-Civil War, and who was doing the work to end slavery? It wasn't black people. Black people were slaves. They did not have the social power. They didn't have anything other than their voices that they might have used privately or whatever to talk to people to bring about this change. But if it wasn't for the fact that in those days there were a majority of white people who wanted to bring this to an end, good white people who were anti-racist and anti-slavery, then black people wouldn't even be free today to be having this conversation about the confusion that's going on, right? That's just the truth. So guaranteed, every single one of those people who was an abolitionist and anti-slavery in those times, by today's standards, they would most definitely probably still be considered racist, right? And the, the moral progress that we've made in the time uh, since those days, um, uh, the people who were alive at that time, who probably held ideas that we would find repugnant, um, and now those ideas are not part of the majority of white people's thinking, but somehow now everyone is racist. Uh, That blows my mind that people can do this arithmetic and arrive at the conclusion that somehow everyone who is white is upholding white supremacy. How did we get free as black people in in that case? And if that was the case, just as a statistical fact, um, we're greatly outnumbered by white people if you look at the demographics of America. If every white person was, in fact, a sort of stoolie of white supremacist ideology, um, I don't think that things would be going the way that they're going right now. The fact that we're, as a, a community of people of color, allowed to have these conversations is a testament to the fact that the majority of white people in this country are still good and are still non-racist and are still trying to make sure that they're upholding liberal values. And the only thing that's going to happen by insisting the opposite of this is that you're going to radicalize white people uh, who you say you're irredeemable as a white person. You are not going to have any chance of becoming anti-racist. This is just your burden to bear. And nope, nothing you can do. You can't sacrifice anything. You can't help anybody. There's nothing that you can do to overcome this. You just have to live with it. So I, I know just middle of America white people who are going to take that as an attack on their integrity, attack on their legacy. And if they have to choose between being a serf of uh, or, or subservient to this sort of uh, ideology, you're going to see people starting to take steps back and cross over into the line where they're like, well, I'm going to go where I'm wanted and where I'm not being accused of mm. uh, all these horrible things. And guess where that's going to lead them? It's going to lead them to the right, and it's going to lead them to the far right, and it's going to lead them to white nationalism. And this is one of my greatest fears, is that these people who are involved in this anti-racist movement are unwittingly becoming the architects of their worst nightmare, where they will bring about an America that is uh, more closely resembling the one that they currently believe we're in. And that's a nightmare. Hmm. As you can attest from your personal yeah Yeah. what in your life convinced you that reason rationality and science were the way to go was that just a part of your circuitry from the get-go or was there a a mentor or somebody you saw or the life chain of experiences that that caused you to root yourself in that way of in that framework So once again, I'm going to be regurgitating something from uh, my podcast yesterday with Chris. Uh, So we, me and Chris shared something in common. I grew up in a sort of cultist environment as well. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his science uh, background in Scientology. Uh, It wasn't something as organized as what he was. My mother was a schizophrenic from the time I was born, and she had indoctrinated us with the most uh, fictional, fantastical sort of uh, beliefs that you can possibly imagine. She isolated us from the rest of the world. Uh, we didn't have friends until we got put in state's custody. We were just constantly on the move, just this nomadic tribe of family going around the world chasing her delusions. And she believed in things like, you know, Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot and that uh, Saddam Hussein was the second coming of Jesus Christ. And this led to a lot that of That is the most radical thing I've, I've heard in a while. 
Oh, it gets worse. And I'm not going to keep going because it's a little bit of a deep rabbit hole. Uh, I was raised with a completely fictional worldview until I was six years old. And so what I described as my Xenu moment to uh, Chris was we eventually were placed in foster care and we were in an emergency shelter in Burlington, Kentucky called Maplewood. And we started having these collisions with reality where we would represent to the group our belief that some of these things were real. And we would just be ridiculed ruthlessly about the things that we believed until uh, we arrived at the realization that we had been taught to believe things that were completely false. Our entire worldview was a fiction. And uh, from that moment forward, uh, uh, having everything that you had ever cherished or held dear completely stripped from you, uh, it, it gives you a different relationship to belief and information. Well, it gives you the opportunity to have a different relationship to those things than you've ever had before. So from the time I was about six or seven, uh, I just had a very um, rigorous relationship with what I allow myself to uh, accept as uh, true and false and good and bad and uh, valuable and, uh, and not. So uh, it, yeah, it, it's been sort of burned into me from my early childhood where uh, these values just became a feature of uh, my cognition and, uh, and, uh, and my intellectual process. And that gives you a perspective on these bad ideas. That, that kind of explains your visceral reaction to the bad ideas. And then also seeing if these bad ideas take over uh, a, a large portion of the black community, they're not going to lead to actual betterment of outcomes unless they... I, I guess the the game theory is if they can play out these ideas that white people are supremacist, they're racist, they'll always be racist, convince the white people of that, and then convince the white people that they need to just pay reparations constantly on a variety of different levels, from monetary all the way up to the morality. Um, then that will somehow allow this disparity to be equalized. And then from there, we can once this magic equality line is reached, then society can progress in a meritocratic, uh, meritocratic fashion, perhaps? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've never been a proponent of reparations, but with the current environment, I have sort of done a few thought experiments thinking about the, the outcomes, uh, the consequences of, of such. And it, it is interesting to, to wonder what would happen, right? So say uh, legislation gets passed and we're just going to disperse an allotment of a lump sum to all black people whose heritage can be traced back to being descendants of slaves, right? Would that be enough for these people, do you think? So imagine there's a sum that could be agreed upon that can be calculated through, uh, I don't know, GDP as it has existed since slavery and uh, some sort of analysis of what it would have been in the absence of the free slave labor that existed that sort of propped up the American economy for 250 years. If we could arrive at that number that everyone agreed was fair, do you really think that it would end um, the, 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 the environment of this racialized sort of grievance culture that we're marred in? Because I... I don't know if it would, to be honest. Well, you'd have to you'd have to redesign the systems. And this is the, this is the problem with it. Like we, we're entering into now that all of this diversity, equity and inclusion doctrine is being implemented and uh, institutionalized. It is uh, basically facilitating the perpetuation of these ideas. There's too much money bound up in it. So even if yeah. everybody got the proper amount of checks, it's so, well, what do you, what do you do with your life? What do you do with your career? This is your career. So there's all, it's already, it's going to take a long time for this stuff to be yeah. dismantled, quote unquote, if it doesn't dismantle everything first. But yeah, but that's, that's on, on a professional level, that's one one thing. But there is a lot of social capital now in mm. playing this game. And this the young generation right now are basically being taught to play out these struggle sessions and check each other's purity with regards to race relations uh, by yes. posting the right thing in the right order at the right time with the right amount of passion, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, it's all pretty nasty. What do you think we should try to be aiming for right now? Is it, is it, is it a fool's errand to think that quality of character should be the guiding light? Or is it too late for that? Is it just that's not enough to equalize society? 
Yeah, I think um, first and foremost, we can speak about this in non-racial terms. And I think insofar as there are certain people who, I mean, like uh, James Lindsay, uh, Jesus, uh, I've uh, I've just grown to cherish this guy over. Wait, the, is he the is he the second coming now? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, he's definitely something. Uh, but uh, I, I I do see the value in the way that he sort of bears down on the specifics of uh, uh, of these phenomena, and uh, it, more and more every day I understand why it's necessary. Uh, mm-hmm. But to a certain extent, I've always believed that saying Voldemort brings Voldemort around. You know. I think that there's a way to speak about these issues where we just use the overarching category of grievance culture, right? Uh, okay. uh, because that's really the issue here. Every single extremist faction that has ever been delivered to human history has come into the whip of grievance culture. Uh, Sunni versus Shia, Jonestown, the Mormon uh, uprising, all those different things. These sects arise out of uh, uh, victimhood. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Red Guard, uh, uh, the Cultural Revolution in, in China. Yeah. These were all um, extremist cults, uh, for lack of a better word, that uh, were propped up by grievance culture. And I'm not exactly sure what the antidote to preventing that from sort of fomenting into a, a grassroots movement on the ground level is. If we're not reaching across the aisle and sort of changing hearts and minds, then what's the value in the work that we're doing? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If, if you're just preaching to your own choir yeah. and you're only sort of uh, 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 galvanizing the people who already believe what you believe, you're not really doing anything. And if there's not a form of rhetoric or a form of uh, armistice that can be formed okay. uh, yeah. between these sides where uh, we are uh, yeah. speaking in terms um, that allow a conversation to, uh, sort of like the, the guy sitting in my class, like th- there was a a huge barrier between uh, dialogue between me and this guy. And I just found a way to deracialize it and, and it moved forward in a way that was, that made a uh, collaboration, a social collaboration possible. I think it's important to inform people about the specifics of this stuff. And I value what people like James and you in the two weeks since I've sort of entered this world, uh, I've, I've really come to appreciate your voices in a way that I can hardly express. Uh, I do believe this is probably one of the defining issues of our time. Yeah. It's at a time, every issue is starting to look like one of the defining issues of our time with yeah. COVID and yeah. the political upheaval everywhere. And this this could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. If, if American culture collapses into a racial melee, <laughs> then uh, I don't know what that bodes for the rest of the world. Yeah. So there's a larger uh, context and a larger perspective to be sort of looking at here. And I think uh, at some point the road has to be um, looking at this as a, uh, a issue of grievance issues and trying to deracialize the rhetoric as much as possible and create a bridge between these two sides where even though they are just diametrically opposed to free speech and conversation and pushback, we have to find some way to make that possible. Otherwise, this is intractable. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if this is the problem with this ideology. It politicizes everything so that there's no place in the world where you can be free from politic. So everything mm. is the war zone. It is the social justice ideology has turned everything into a war zone uh, from cooking to, you know, you just, you look at the stupid ass articles that they're writing. What they're doing is they're, they're lifting everything up into this heavenly war. And so I think that what we need to do in order for us to speak across differences of ideologies, we have to find a common experience. And if every single common experience is now stained with ideology, then there's no place left for us to be peaceful. There's no piece of music. There's no meal that we have. There's no potluck. Even potluck is probably some sort of cultural appropriation. I'm sure it is. is, Um, So what we need is an arena where we can not be political. That's one way of finding a common ground by which we can entertain reasonable discourse across difference of opinion or difference of, uh, you know, our ultimate goals here. Um, so that's very, that's very difficult to carve out that space. Another way of doing it is allowing people to just run this software and deal with the reality. There will always be a reality check. And yeah. hopefully there's enough people that have small reality checks before the entire system has to have a reality check. Yeah, I was having a conversation with someone on Twitter. I used the analogy of the cinnamon challenge where 
no matter how many people tell you, don't do the cinnamon challenge, you see everybody else getting praised for it and getting attention. And you say, well, the cinnamon challenge can't be that bad. And you go ahead and do it. And after the experience, you're probably not going to be able to eat cinnamon again for the rest of your life. And uh, so that's just uh, like an allegory for my belief that these ideologies are going to consume themselves. They're going to cannibalize each other. They're going to implode from within. But the damage that they can do to our social structure and yeah. uh, relations in the meantime is what yeah. we need to be specifically worried about. How long do we have to allow for this to play out to its reasonable conclusion? That's the thing about bad ideas is mm-hmm. that uh, the, the wider and further they're distributed, the faster they fail. It's just that sometimes the, self, uh, the self-deception that it has failed takes longer to kick in, right? So, I mean, yeah. everyone thinks that communism had its uh, glory day, but it didn't. It failed immediately, right? It was an immediate disaster, but the, it took decades for it to sort of cement in the minds of everyone around that, okay, this is a failed experiment. Uh, I don't think that we have that long in this case to, to wait for that person-by-person realization. And I don't know what the fast-forward button to those realizations is, Hmm. but I do think that we need to find it. Hmm. Trump uh, 2020, maybe that will be it. That's that's my biggest fear in all of this, is that so now we've got Trump being the first person on the political uh, global stage to start speaking reason about what the phenomenon that's happening on the left. And this is another thing that worries me about the sort of rhetoric that we're seeing on, on our own side with James Lindsay and other people, is that it's going to be used as material to radicalize more white nationalists because insofar as it speaks cogently and coherently against what we're seeing with the radicalization of the far left, it's going to be co-opted as a tool to sort of get more people on Trump's side insofar as he's able to jigger it to his advantage to to be the person speaking reasonably about they're going to radicalize your kids. They're going to tell you that you're racist. They're going to tear down Western society. And unfortunately, that's exactly the same thing that we're saying. Yeah. And it just so happens to be true. And so in the same way that uh, when Obama and the D- Democratic Party refused to uh, say Islamic extremism back in like 2015, but Trump did, that was sort of what cemented his campaign is that people saw him speaking openly and truthfully about this phenomenon that other people were just trying to sweep under the rug and sort of language police about. And it gave him a legitimacy politically that I think was the catalyst to his entire political career. Well, this is the thing. The uh, There's a Jordan Peterson quote about it's really difficult to tell when the left has gone too far, and it's really easy to tell when the right has gone too far when it becomes very racialized. So mm. insofar as we are involved in going in the same direction that the white supremacists want us to go, which would be not towards an ethno-state, but just against the left, just against, let's say, Antifa, just against the radicalization of the Democratic Party, the left, and so on. Are we able to trust ourselves with the tools at our disposal to move in a direction that benefits temporarily the extremists on the right, but actually takes the wind out of their sails in the long term by returning to a liberal uh, notion of content of character as the guiding uh, you know, rubric of how we're going to engage with one another. You've just described uh, you know, my loftiest hopes for the outcomes of, of this. I don't expect this to end in a post-racial utopia in America. At the very least, I want it to be a return to the center, you know what I mean? As liberals or progressives, I don't really identify as uh, any of these things on the spectrum. But insofar as other people are viewing these relationships in those dichotomies, I think that it is paramount that we do not provide fodder for free to the people who would use the behaviors and the tactics of the extremists on our side to further their own agenda. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I think that the only way to achieve that and sort of um, rebound from this downward spiral that we're in on the left is to um, convince everyone that you are bringing about outcomes that are not in your interest. And this was a huge talking point uh, years back when uh, Trump was campaigning. Why are all these people voting for things that are not in their interest, right? How do you convince people to vote against their own interests? And I don't think that most of the left realizes it yet, but insofar as you are an adherent or a proponent or 
uh, a sympathizer with these sort of dogmas and ideologies that are popping up out of academia with intersectionality and critical race theory and white fragility and white privilege and all of these other pernicious sort of ideas, you are, in fact, voting against your interests by allowing these things to be sort of uh, distributed socially and propping them up as the way forward. I, I think another argument to dissuade people from going down this path is that it actually is psychologically harmful for you. It actually causes you much more distress than it releases anybody from distress, actually. So mm. it, 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 it yeah. turns you into a cult member, and being in a cult isn't really that good. It gives you a sense of purpose, but it actually, over time, it really damages your soul. It really puts you into a a bind that uh, maybe certain people just have to experience before they really understand just how lame it is to be stuck in a way of thinking that that is based yeah, yeah. on that kind of stuff. Yeah, I second that. Uh, yeah, one hundred percent. There's there's a lot of different arguments to be made, and um, I think we should I think we should wrap up now. And I, I want to talk to you off the record a little bit. Um, because I think there's so much more for us to be talking about, so I want to save something for later um, for another episode. Yeah. But um, do you, do you have any kind of like a mission statement or closing thought or, or something for us to be focusing on um, going forward, or that you would like people to be thinking about? We need to make sure that in our pushback against these dogmas and ideologies and uh, concepts that we are um, ruthless against the ideas, as ruthless as you can possibly imagine, but that we do not mistake the people who hold those ideas uh, as a target as well. There's, there's no um, excuse for developing a psychology that is uh, in-group, out-group, and these are your enemies. We are dealing with Americans who, like it or not, are actually acting within the, the the democratic process to a certain extent insofar as you know uh, uh, protests and things of this nature have always been a part of uh, social change it just so happens that we disagree with the the things that are being moved towards and it's not a stretch of a, the imagination to imagine that people on our side will soon be acting in similar ways um, if this goes really bad mm-hmm. so uh, I, I call for people to um, draw a very clear distinction between the ideas uh, and the people, and to try to find a place of compassion for these people and realize that they really are just unfortunate to be in the circumstances that they're in. Being someone who is convinced of lies, being someone who is convinced of fiction, being someone who is being manipulated by faith actors, uh, and being convinced of that worldview is just a misfortune that is going to it's going to hurt a lot of people and it's going to have uh, do a lot of harm to their lives. And uh, I, I think we should acknowledge that and try to focus on beating back these ideas in the public space and keep that uh, distinction clear. Well said. Well said. Well, let's wrap up the recording part and carry it to the after party, if you don't mind. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. I'm cutting. I'm kind of cut the recording congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast if you enjoyed this product consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash benjamin boyce or joining me on patreon also follow me on twitter at benjamin a boyce have a good night